Hey guys, welcome back to the pre-production podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am here with a wonderful guest. His name is Ryan Spindell, writer-director of the Mortuary Collection. I think one of, if not maybe, the best horror anthologies ever made. It is so nice to have you, man. I'm a fan of you. We've talked a few times at Fantastic Fest and over Zoom. Thank you so much for coming on today, man. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've been watching you forever, so this is a treat. Awesome. Well, the way it goes on the show is basically I love to take the viewer through um, a person's history and really let them kind of know everything. And Because no one breaks into the industry one way. Everyone has a different path. So where did that begin for you? Where did your love of the movies start? Man, it, this is a question that I think about a lot because I, uh, you know, I think a lot about the career uh, path that I've chosen uh, for good and for bad. And I uh, and I listen to a lot of podca- podcasts where people talk about where their love of movies came from. And I think we, you know, the common story is at some point in time at around 10, we all got a movie camera and we started making things. Um, but I kind of feel like that's what everybody did, right? Like you didn't. Like all of my friends got a camera and started making movies with their friends at the age of 10. Um, but uh, few of them actually had the staying power to make it a career. And, uh, and and so I was digging deeper. I was trying to think, okay, where did it really happen? Like everybody wants to make movies, but when did I like truly find that spark? And um, for me, my background was sort of uh, always art-based, but I kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. So as a kid, I wanted to be a cartoonist, uh, and I wanted to make my own comic strip because Far Side was a huge influence on me. Uh, also, uh, I wouldn't watch horror movies when I was really young um, because I was scared of them. So I would watch a lot of Zucker Brothers movies instead. So um, <laughs> I would watch. <laughs> it's, it's, you can sort of see it in everything I do to this day, I think. But um, Top Secret was a movie that I rented probably a hundred times uh, growing up. And airplane, of course, uh, oh, yeah. again movies. So, uh, so yeah, so comics was really where I started, and, and illustration and drawing. And um, I grew up in a really isolated little community uh, in uh, northeastern Maine, uh, near the Canada border. Um, and so, it was sort of a solitary existence. So, there's like a lot of reading, and then there was a lot of like making things by myself. Uh, so, I got to a I went through a phase where I was like constructing things, and then I would. Um, I would uh, put on plays for my parents, but just specifically so I could build sets because I was obsessed with like, oh, I want to create an environment in this room of my house. Um, and then as I got older, I, uh, I went to school for photography. And so I got really into photography uh, and graphic design. And I was kind of uh, kind of flailing around trying to figure out what it was I was going to do. Um, and I kind of came to filmmaking uh, because it sort of combined all of these different things that I'd been doing my whole life into one thing so i could uh, i could work with actors uh be, which you know was always my siblings up until then or i could build sets with my hands or i could uh illustrate posters or um i could do all these different things and uh i was never really good at one thing but if i could take all these different things that i was kind of good at and combine it together i could trick people into thinking mm-hmm. uh that i was good at something uh that's sort of what filmmaking is so this is the longest winded answer. Uh, I'm no, sorry, it's, but it's, um, no, no, don't apologize. The, the more detail, okay. the better. Okay. Okay. So the moment was, was I graduated college. Um, I was unemployed. I went to school at Florida state university. Uh, I think I'd gotten a degree in graphic design and photography. And, um, I really wanted to work on film sets, but I didn't know how. And so I found this ad on 
I want to say it was Mandy, but this was probably before Mandy was even a thing. Uh, so it was some sort of, it was like the Craigslist, the equivalent of like the mid 2000s Craigslist. And um, I found this uh, small independent feature that was shooting in um, up in New Hampshire, which was actually pretty close to where I grew up. And uh, I called the guy and I said, uh, I'd love to work on your shoot. And he said, well, we're starting tomorrow. And I said, I can be there in 24 hours. And so I got in my car and I drove straight. I think I slept for like two hours in the back of my car at a rest stop. And I showed up to this little tiny production in New Hampshire. Um, the movie never came out, uh, so I can I can talk a little bit of smack. But um, it was a crew of about five people, and everybody was um, doing five different jobs. And the uh, the producer was also the writer, the director, and the lead star of his movie. Oh boy, he'd been saving up for years. Yeah, and uh, so. He, uh, he sort of put us right to work and I was the gaffer, I was the grip, I was the stunt double, I kind of was doing everything. Uh, but it was really cool because you just get thrown into this mix and I'd never been on a feature film or, or really any film set before. Um, but then there was this one night where we, he put us in a small cabin that was not heated. It just had, there was like one little fireplace, five or six of us, uh, and it was probably about 32 degrees outside. And so we're all huddled around this little fireplace in this cabin. And uh, we're talking and we're just having this great time and we open a bottle of wine. And at the time I was probably 22 or 23. And I suddenly had this realization that like I was, it was a miserable experience. We were all exhausted. We were all tired, but we were having a blast in this cabin. And I was looking around the circle of people and there was one guy, one girl who was like 19. Uh, there was somebody, some people more my age. And there was a couple of people who were like thirties. And I was like, holy shit like i'd forgotten that the that we're spanning this whole spectrum of ages these are just people these are my people these are the people i've been looking for my whole life and in that little cabin in new hampshire i had this like i still remember the feeling to this day i just had this overwhelming feeling that if making movies means being around these kind of people for the rest of my life uh that i'm all in and i remember driving back to florida as soon as that shoot ended and i was just a hundred percent committed and am to this day that is so cool man i mean like that's a great story because there's there really is something about the community that's fostered on a film set good or bad um maybe even more so on a bad one because you're kind of like in it and everyone can kind of tell like this isn't really going well and it kind of creates this feeling of like community that i i, I don't really i've never experienced i worked a ton of jobs before um i was able to actually start getting on film sets and never ever experienced that level of community that, that exists on a film set where everyone's just kind of there to make the same thing and has hopefully the same goal it's true because once you get to the point of being the director you're a little bit ousted from the uh the crew mentality you're sort of on the outside i think it was um i'm going to draw blank on who said this but they said that the job of actor and director are the loneliest jobs on set um because you kind of are you, you're overseeing the community, but everyone's like a little bit nervous about you and a little bit, it's tough for them to sort of completely open up and they don't want to complain about your shoot when you're like struggling to like survive on a daily basis. Right. Um, and I had, I had um, my experience in working in, on a professional level um, has been minimal. I probably did a couple of years of like gaffing and gripping once I moved to LA. But I did work on probably 150 student film sets in Florida before I actually got into film school there. And so that was sort of this invaluable experience. 
um, of kind of getting a chance to do a little bit of everything and feeling some of that camaraderie. And and to this day, when I'm directing and, you know, I'm, I'm all alone in my room, like at middle of the night, trying to rewrite a scene for the next morning and the crew are like having beers and bonding. I, I do still feel a little bit jealous of that camaraderie that I feel like I, I kind of missed out on. Yeah. I, I kind of, I felt the same way during my shoot because there was, um, you know, like after we, we did pretty well in regards to making our days and there was only like one day we had to do overtime and there was one day we had to call grace, but for the most part, we, we got everything we needed. And so at the end of the day, even on some of the tougher days, it seemed like people were sort of in a good mood and some people were going out for a drink or whatever. And I did kind of feel like, damn, I wish I could go. But then I just thought to myself, no, man, cause you got, you know, you got to go sleep. You got to go think about the next day. You're going to have storyboards to w- look at and study until your eyes bleed. And it's like, it, you know, it, there is, there is a sense of like, man, I wish I could hang out right now, but I can't. It's true. But I think that Bruce, Bruce will understand. I mean, I, I used to get anxiety being on a shoot because sometimes I would go just because I'm like, I really want to do this, but then I'm like not there. Right. So someone's talking to me and my brain is like you said, like thinking about the 250 things that I have to do as soon as I get home. Um, but I, I found that uh, over time, it's like, even if you're kind of not there, just the fact that you showed up and just the fact that you're even just like getting to know people's names and like finding those little small pockets, if you can't do it afterwards during the day to connect with people has been like probably one of the biggest learning experiences for me as a filmmaker, because you, when you start, you're so overwhelmed. You just like, I don't have time, but like, then you realize that, the people that are on your team are everything. And if you like, if that like B camera operator decides that he or she likes you, uh, now you have am- all this amazing footage that you never would have had before, just because you took the time to like say hello and point out that they're doing a good job. So I do like that part of it. Uh, it's kind of like being cool dad at like at the sleepover when you come in and everyone's kind of weird and nervous and you tell a joke and they laugh, but maybe they have to laugh. You're not sure. Um, (laughs) That's a great, that's a great comparison. So after this shoot in New New Hampshire, you came back to Florida and I imagine you're thinking about how to continue doing that. You mentioned that the feeling of community made you feel so special and you wanted to recapture that. So what was the next step for you? Yeah. So I went back and my idea of, how to get into the film community was very small because I, I grew up again, remote, remote Maine. I ended up going to college in Florida and the only um, avenue towards film that I could see clearly was getting to the Florida state film school, which is an incredibly, yeah, I think it still is, but at the time, especially it was an incredibly competitive film school to get into. There's 20 people accepted a year wow. at the graduate film conservatory. And you have to like, even just getting in is like, five or six levels of interviews and like you have to pitch story ideas and then you have to do a group thing and then you have to do a special tour. Anyway, I knew it was like prestigious school and it was like in the town I was in. So I was like, okay, this has to be it. And so I worked really hard and I volunteered on a ton of movies and then I applied and I got rejected and then I got rejected again and then I got rejected again. I ended up getting rejected. I got rejected twice and I got waitlisted twice. Um, and all I was doing, I just became consumed with this idea that if I can get into the Florida State Film School, then I can have a film career. So it just became the, the the only way, which in retrospect is silly, but I guess at the time it's all I knew. And so eventually, the like the, probably the fifth time I think that I applied, when I walked into the interview for the third time, I was like, guys, I'm just going to keep doing this. You bet. You might as well just let me. In. And so they uh, 
<laughs> they broke and um and getting into film school and at that point in time it was sort of a, a dual thing part of it was that i had been practicing all of these different creative mediums my whole life so i came in with all of this knowledge and i also was a, a photographer for abc news and a storm chaser for a year in between oh uh, my god that, that that's amazing uh <laughs> that's i never would have expected you to say that you were a storm chaser that's so cool i used to watch those videos all the time i mean i was upset in the 90s i was obsessed with tornadoes i think everybody was because of twister but uh you know that, that is amazing it, it's it's insane what you'll do when you're 24 years old and you have a camera on your shoulder the things that the risks you will take to get a shot uh if would i do it now Probably not, but I wonder if that prepared you in any way uh, for your directing career of like, you know what? Uh, we need this shot like right now. I have filmed tornadoes. I, we're going to get oh, this shot. A hundred percent. And like one of the things you don't think, okay, first off, I had a camera on my shoulder for two years. Like, so I began to see the world through a frame just because it was always there. So that's like, you know, the first part. And then secondly, news uh as i think as i hope we all know is uh all designed and it's, it's a narrative it's a narrative uh that's being presented as factual um and so a lot of it like okay i'm breaking some sort of news code by telling you this probably not but if i uh if i die we, tomorrow you know why we've all seen nightcrawler we, we know how it goes okay okay i remember my news director was like uh, when you go to, to a, the aftermath of a tornado, um, I always like to keep uh, a half a bottle of whiskey and a baby shoe in the back of my car. You throw that down on the debris and you get a shot of that and it really like gives the audience an emotional hook. Wow, a half a bottle of whiskey. That's that's so unique. I would have expected like a doll or something, you know, like a mm. like a like a baby doll but the baby shoe though yeah that's like oh my god what happened a bloody journal that's uh has the label <laughs> uh my future plans on the front or something <laughs> you know and and that's that's funny because i imagine that this also you know like i said this probably gave you that a little bit of a spark to continue and then to move towards making films and hey you know what it would be really great if we had like a little extra oomph to this scene right now like that baby shoe you know what i mean it's true it's true because and because Again, having the camera on my shoulder all the time made setting up frames seem like second nature to to a degree that I I couldn't understand why it was even a struggle for anybody because I I didn't even realize I'd acquired the skill. And that kind of goes for all the things I've done, not to mention having been rejected from Florida State uh, four times uh, put a bit of a fire under me, which I really like was excited and appreciated the fact that I was there. So I really got the most of it. Um, and then I went right into horror. Horror's always been my thing. Uh, well, not always, but um, since high school, horror was my thing. And um, I ended up being the only person in my class that was a horror person because my class was a grad, a bunch of grad students, and it was a prestigious program. And um, everybody had these high aspirations to do high art. And I was like, I want monsters and blood. And so that ended up being my path. And that ended up working out for me because at the end of the the program they pick five people to do thesis films and they want like a broad spectrum of types and so i was really the only person that did genre and so i did um this short film called kirksdale that ended up uh at the time being uh like a little bit of like 
I guess there wasn't viral at the time, but it, it, it went out to the industry and I got a rep. I got agents and managers when I was still in Florida. And that kind of led me to LA. And uh, and so the, the next chapter began. That's amazing that you were with a class that essentially, um, I won't ask you if any of them have succeeded, but I do think that it's interesting that a genre that is so looked down upon by the higher ups sometimes, especially like awards ceremonies and things like that, is the genre that so often can help break people into the industry. And I think I think maybe a lot of the people in your class thought, well, no, I have to like make, a, like you said, a high art, something that, that feels about. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's great. I love movies. I love all movies. But when it comes to like the movies I really do get excited to see, it is movies like The Mortuary Collection, you know. And those are the types of movies that I get, like I'm going to go to the theater, I'm going to buy popcorn, I'm going to do the whole thing. I'm not just going to like watch it. It's like a real experience for me. Yeah, I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna get into the the semantics of what makes horror the best genre, this is going to be a four hour podcast because <laughs> it is it is the the genre that takes the most craft. It's the genre that requires the most skill. Uh, it's the trickiest to to nail. It uh, creates the strongest emotional reaction when done right from an audience. It's it's pure cinema uh, condensed down into this like incredible thing. And the fact that anybody would consider it somehow a lower art form than some others is so insane to me. And I think maybe we're on a trajectory to where that tide is turning. Um, but I'm not holding out hope because I think it just takes one lull in the, in the, the amount of money that the genre is making for people to immediately throw it right back in the trash again. And I think that's just like a general fundamental misunderstanding of what we do. Yeah. I, I had a little bit of hope when, when Jordan Peele won for get out the screenplay. Um, and it felt like, okay, wow, that's like a real notice of like a horror film. I was shocked when Tony Collette didn't even get nominated for hereditary. Like that blew me away. Insane. You Insane. Know? It seemed like a yeah. shoe into me. Um, yeah. There are so many moments like that with the genre, but what I what I love about it is that you really can explore just about every level of human emotion in horror. You can have a horror comedy, you can have it be a dark comedy, or you can have it be like a spoof comedy, like scary movie or something. You know, <laughs> like there's so many options. You can have the more prestigious horror, like something from A twenty four, or you can have something a little more like uh, Evil Dead Rise, where it's just like a really fun, bloody good time. So. I don't really get that in any other genre. Uh, it's funny. Yeah. I, I feel like I can explore everything in the horror genre. It's funny that it's become very in vogue right now to talk about all the therapy you're going to, but it's not in vogue to say you love horror movies, which is the ultimate therapy. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, and there's also so many subgenres. There's monsters, ghosts, demons, nature, like the birds. It's a virus, it's zombies, there's a psychological slasher. I mean, it never ends. There, there's just an endless amount of options. And I think that's why there's always going to be a person who has a new idea for the horror genre. And it's always going to impress me at least once or twice every single year. I remember the first time I saw Hereditary and, and I was so fucking blown away by just the simple choices of like showing barely seeing something in the shadows and just those little ideas that I had never really seen. The same with The Witch. I mean, like, I love big movies. I, uh, Top Gun Maverick was incredible. I mean, it was just fucking yeah. amazing. But, like, that's the other thing is if you had 
like let's say you had $500,000, you maybe could make like a really indie sort of guerrilla style action movie with like GoPro cameras or something. But that's about it. But if you had $500,000, you can make a fucking good horror movie. Absolutely. There's always a way in. But in general, though, like you can make a low budget horror movie and it can crack into the top 10 of the box office like Terrifier 2. That's just so rare in some of the other bigger genre, you know, because there's just so many options for for filmmakers and horror. It's great. It's true. What is, um? can I turn this interview around on you for a second? Sure. Um, what is uh, What is your favorite horror subgenre? It's strange because I love to say that all my favorite stuff is like super serious, like quote unquote pretentious, but it's, <laughs> but honestly, like I got very excited to go watch Scream 6. Like that was very exciting for me. I'm wearing a Friday the 13th shirt right now. Um, but I do, I do really love like a great M. Night Shyamalan film that just feels so human and psychological but also has like this sort of spiritual genre bent to it i i think i think his first three movies in particular i guess it's actually not his first three movies because he did praying with anger and wide awake but six Sense, unbreakable and signs like those movies to me shaped me as a person as a filmmaker and so i think it's 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 a film that has something to say woven into a sort of four quadrant appearance so if you can if you can entertain the majority of the audience but also maybe subconsciously put some ideas in there those are my favorites i love that yeah and and his movies are funny too like yeah that's the thing people don't think about because they think about the most serious parts but they're funny i'd probably put poltergeist in that that camp of what you're talking about absolutely a movie that does everything it's scary and funny and touching and it has something to say uh yeah I, i that's great good answer but I also, Do you have a least favorite? I don't think I have a least favorite, but I know that if it's done poorly, like if it's done cheaply on purpose just to do it, found footage. But the thing is, I love found footage movies, the good ones. Like, I really do. And and Aspects of My Film has some found footage in it. And so I try to find a way to, like, utilize the best things of the genre which to me like if you if your idea is in service of the found footage genre great but if you are just doing the found footage genre because you know you can and the movie should be something else then that's where i start to think uh you know but like yeah the the great ones are great i mean i i wouldn't call this found footage but one of my favorite horror movies is lake mungo which is a mockumentary um it's a little different from found footage, but it's kind of the same family. Of course, Blair Witch, you know, I mean, in, in 99, when Blair Witch came out, I, I remember every kid in my, in my class was just like convinced it was real. And we, cause I was in middle school at the time and everybody was like, this is, this is absolutely happening. I went and saw the movie. I counted how many F words were in the movie. They said, fuck like 80 times, man. Um, <laughs> you know, it was crazy. Uh, and of course, paranormal activity was another big one where it just, there, there are things that these movies can accomplish, like a visceral sort of fear, if they're done really well. But if they're not, that's when we start to run into problems. I, I, I love what you're saying because you're saying, because uh, I agree with you, all the things you just said. And also, I love that there's a found footage component to your film because the best way for us to tackle the things that 
bother us the most is to go after them head on. I that with the mortuary collection, it actually started the same way. It started with me sitting in a coffee shop going, and people who listen to your podcast are going to kill me when I say this. But it started with me thinking, I don't like slasher movies. They are the romantic comedy of horror. They're so predictable. <laughs> they're exploitative. They're so basic. I'm mad at slasher movies, and I'm specifically mad at movies about babysitters being killed by masked killers. And in that moment was when the seed for the Mortuary Collection was born, and I made the babysitter murders as the first piece of the movie. But I will say this as a caveat, because I was making the babysitter murders, I was like, I better watch more slasher movies. I better get more familiar with them. And I watched Halloween like nine times. And I fell in love with it. Oh my god, it's so but it good! It took me the it took me the process of making the movie to find out what was special about that subgenre, and and I was writing that subgenre off in the same way that my parents wrote off every movie I loved in high school because it was just horror. I was writing off something because I'd seen so many bad versions that had clouded my vision, and then I was like, there is a purity to this if it's done right. Do I like? the slasher genre now mostly not but i'm open to it more so than i was before and i love that you did that i love that you went right after it i think that's so cool thanks man and i think that's also a really good uh, piece of advice too uh, for someone who's trying to look for their specific voice of something to actually try to tackle something that you don't like in films and figure out what you don't like about it because maybe you can find a way to improve upon what you don't like about it because everyone else who wants to let's just keep talking about slashers or let's you know what let's say it's a musical if you hate musicals and you feel like musicals just aren't your thing why do you hate them and can you improve upon them because everyone else who loves musicals is going to write musicals the way other musicals are because they already like musicals but if you don't like them but you think maybe i have a way into one it's probably going to be different from everyone else's Yes, that's so true. Because I, I think a, another common thing that we see in our genre specifically is, you know, there's there's kind of like, there's two uh, uh, potentially pitfalls in the types of filmmakers that make horror. One is the uh, the day player who like doesn't like horror at all, but they get the opportunity and they do it to try to make a quick buck. And we can see those films, like we can see right through them in a second, right? That was like the early 2000s and so many of those, yes. those types of films. And then- um, the other one is the fans, the super fan that's so dedicated to the thing they love that they cannot move past it. They are just recreating the same thing again and again and again. Yeah. So it is good to be out of your comfort zone. And it's because we do tend to forget, especially because movies is such a commodity now, we tend to forget that it's an art. And yes, it needs to make money, but like you need to find the unique perspective on it and I, I think that, that that that's a crazy that that's sort of like that screenwriting tip where it's like you stuck on your movie totally change the genre see what happens i think that's something that we should all strive to do at least once like find a way find the thing you don't like the most and go after it head on and you're right i bet you get something totally fresh and unique so babysitter murders was a short film first or, or did you um film a portion of of the anthology first I had this idea for the babysitter murders and I wrote it and I loved it. And then I was like, at the time, this is probably, this is right when I moved to LA. So I guess this is probably 2009, 
I had just, I'd gone down this like long, terrible path on a studio project that I was like, very close to directing. And I had sort of, I had uh, sold my soul to the devil and it like didn't happen. And so I like went back, I regrouped and I was like, I want to make, what's the thing that I want to see the most? What's the thing that I don't ever see that like I would get the most excited for saw a trailer? And that was a uh, horror anthology. And at the time, the only horror anthology that had really come out in the mainstream way was Trick or Treat, and it had gotten smashed, as we all know, um, by the distributors. And so I was like, okay, well, I have this cool idea for a story, and I have a whole file on my computer full of horror shorts that I can add to it. So how do I take all these things and combine them together uh, into an anthology? And so then... As soon as I was like, I have all the materials I need, I was immediately like, oh shit, but like I need the kick-ass wraparound or it's not worth it. Like a bad wraparound is a bad horror anthology, like dead stop. Like uh, big opinions here, but I'm a big amicus guy. I need to see why I'm watching this as a whole. And so um, I started crafting what became the Mortuary Collection at the time. And I wrote the whole feature, which is kind of compiling a bunch of different shorts uh you know, picking my favorite ones, then trying to figure out some sort of order that made sense, and then refining, refining, refining. And um, so I started with the script for the whole feature, and I sent it. One of the first people I sent it to is this company called Glass Eye Pictures. Do you know those guys? No, I don't. York? Uh, it's Larry Fezzenden's company. Oh, okay. It's like where Ty West started, and like uh, uh, all all kinds of uh, all kinds of awesome like indie like fringe filmmakers, and um, they loved it. And we were trying to make it there for a while, but nobody wanted to make an anthology. And I kept pushing and pushing and everybody was like, ah, oh, the script's cool, but no fucking way we're making this. I'm a stubborn person. And when people say this isn't a thing that you can do, I'm like, then I'm doubling down. I'm it's like uh, it's like the Florida film school. It is. It, this is the this is my whole history. This is my whole this is this is the 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 why I've achieved what I have and why I haven't achieved what I have. It's it's been I'm just I'm just adamant about these things that I sort of walk into and I was like the horror anthology is going to be huge. I just need to show people what it can be. And so I looked at all the features or all the shorts that I had in the script and the babysitter murders was the most contained and the simplest to pull off because it's just basically two actors in a house. And so I mounted a Kickstarter campaign, um, which literally is a whole entire under podcast to even get into that. Oh, I get it. As I mean, you know, yeah. as you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> But that was a, a, a six month fair, uh, uh, and we raised 60 grand and we made the Babysitter Murders. And then the Babysitter Murders, much like my film at film school, ended up being a real like hot commodity, it was being shared around and all these executives. And I got like fancy new agents, new managers. And I was going to these, these meetings that I had no business into being in. And this is like a, another common thread of my career is like going into these meetings and getting excited about what the industry is going to give me and losing sight of what I need to be doing to make my career, like as if it's going to come to me and land in my lap. Um, you're nodding like, like you know this. I like, get it. I mean, um, I, I, yeah. I've had about 3,000 general meetings and um, usually it's a lot of excitement and then, okay, that did nothing. Yes, yes. Um, and I was going to all these meetings and everybody was saying, oh, we love the Babysitter Murders. Uh, what do you want to do? Anything. And I said, this anthology Oh my God, you are literally, I swear to God, dude, I just said that exact thing to, to someone the other day. I go into these fucking meetings and people are like, we love what you got and and, and it's so good and I love it so much. We should do something together. And I'm like, what about the thing you love? Like, 
hello. <laughs> no, not that, not that. We we don't we don't we don't need that right now. Something else, something else, some IP, some book. I don't know. I think we as creatives, though, like if we were given the wand to like as studio executives to make movies, I think we would make fantastic choices because yeah. we would look for filmmakers that never fail and we would give them the lead way to do it the way they want to do it. And we would just reap the benefits. But Hollywood doesn't work like that. Hollywood is people. Everyone wants to like everyone thinks they have their finger on the pulse, but they've never made anything and they want to. Anyway, that's all other on the trail. But um, on on my uh, water bottle tour, um, I went to one company and I met an executive named Allison Friedman, and she was like, "My boss would never make this movie, but I love the short and I love the script, and I'd like to try to raise money, uh, independently." And I, "What do you think?" And I was like, "Great!" And then I left that meeting and assumed it would never happen, and I continued on with my water bottle tour, uh, and I drank a lot of water. I was so hydrated. That was the most hydrated year of my life. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, for those listening uh, who, who don't know what that means, basically it's sort of this term that, that's thrown around when you when you meet a bunch of people and, and you take all these meetings and everybody gives you a bottle of water and you drink it and you go to another meeting, there's more water and there's water everywhere and you got to piss a lot. I wonder if there's a way for to take advantage of that. Like you go into a meeting and you ask for a sandwich or something. Yeah. <laughs> Just like completely throw them for a loop. They have no idea what's going on. Wait, whoa, who is this guy? Yeah. Well, nowadays you don't even get a bottle of water. Now it's all Zoom. So it's right. A, exactly. A, a digital hello. But anyway, Allison was like, um, I forgot about her. Um, I didn't forget about her because she's great. I just forgot about her because she was one of a million. And then she called me like several months later and she was like, hey, I got a million dollars. Do you want to make this movie? And I said, yes. And so we immediately went into sort of putting together the movie and we met with all these um these live producers and they read the script and they were like, okay, a million bucks. And then we sat down with them and they were like, there's no fucking way you can make this movie. It's not going to happen. You need four times this amount of money. And even then uh, it's going to be a shitty movie. Like it can't be done. And so we were kind of in this weird spot where we're like, well, we have a million dollars, but everyone's saying we can't do it, but we just made one fifth of it for $60,000. Right. This doesn't compute to me. Let's just start piecing this together brick by brick and that's kind of how the mortuary collection as a as a feature was born was we said we we still like you know paid all the money and did all the things to do it as a feature but we were like let's make two of the shorts in one month and then go back and regroup and see where we are and so we kind of like piece by piece shot the movie uh for the over the course of two years until we had the final the final thing which I will say for anybody out there thinking about doing that, um, only do it if uh, you if you're willing to sacrifice everything you love about life and relationships and uh, being a human being to do it. Because while two years of shooting a movie allows you to uh, custom build every prop and uh, shoot every insert perfectly and do all the things you want to do. Um, nobody should be in production for two years straight. It's just uh, <laughs> devastating. Unless you're working on a Marvel movie and you have a trailer and you have a massive team of people that do everything. But if you're like planning till three in the morning and then painting a set until five, going to sleep for two hours and then shooting, uh, it's not recommended. But then again, uh, it's a competitive industry and we gotta we got to do what we got to do, I guess. We had our premiere, like we went to Astoria and did a premiere 
um, for the for Astoria, Oregon, where we shot because we loved the town so much. We had such a great time there. We were driving to Astoria the entire day leading up to the premiere, up until thirty minutes before we put on our suits. I was shooting inserts to like fix a huge chunk of the movie. Like it's that is the thing. But I will say this: like one filmmaker to another, Vanessa, Vanessa, Vanessa. The hardest thing about being an independent filmmaker, especially in these early days, is like we always equate making movies to sort of um I don't know why where we got this. I, I made a trench. I made a movie that was like set in World War One trench, like in film school. And since then we've always used a World War One scenario as like our allegory for film. But filmmaking is like uh like a waging war, trench warfare, right? So you rise up out of the trench and you start running across no man's land and you have hundred people with you and everyone's down for the cause and people are like blazing. And then the further you get across no man's land, the more people like get fall away. They, they fall down at some point in time. You're the last person and you're just dragging like six of your, of your closest like collaborators through the mud. You're getting so close and it's so easy to just collapse in the mud and go, okay, it's done. Especially because you're going to have producers uh, poking their heads up from your trench and shooting bullets that are hitting you in the back. As like, that's just the inevitable part of it. Like, so you're going to get it from both sides. The word finesse is probably a little light for this thing, but like did the, the final, the, the edit and where it's like the difference between your movie being good or your movie being great is like almost always created from sheer like dogged determination by the filmmakers who care the most and like those fights suck so bad because you're so tired and you don't want to fight with anybody else, but you have to do it because the quality increase at those final moments is so massive. So finesse dude, shoot other shots, like get it right. You will only be mad at yourself at the end if you don't. I completely agree with you um, in every way. And it is interesting uh, when you watch a film, good or great, or even not so great, I think it's really easy sometimes for people to sit back and just think like, well, that came together real nice. They did a good job. And they have no idea just how much, like every little battle to make even the, the most minute things, you know, like there's, okay, there's a shot in the movie uh, that involves a door. And when we were watching it through, I was just, I mean, I was tearing out my hair. Like, my God, if we had just did this one fucking thing, this <laughs> goddamn door. And so I got some money together and went out and did it. <laughs> it had to happen. It was like, no one will ever know. No one will ever even it's just, but it's, it's, I know, and I'm happy about it. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. And, and it makes a difference. Like somebody said to me once, like they were complaining about, uh, they work in a commercial shoot. They're like, oh, the director is obsessed with where this lamp was in the background. Like how annoying we were like on a tight timeline. And I'm like, yeah, for you in that one moment, the director adjusting that lamp was annoying. And look, maybe this was an annoying director. I don't know. But, those little adjustments over the course of the entire movie add up to something that's yeah. uh, undescribable, but like palatable and, and important. And I think it's something that's sort of missing in modern film where people are just like, it's getting done. Yeah, just shoot it up. 
do it on your iPhone. Anyone can make a movie. Um, and, and not that I'm, I don't mean to discourage that type of filmmaking. And I do think you should practice and should do it. But like, as you rise up, you should focus on the craft and you should pay attention to the details. And I think we shot 160 inserts post-production just anywhere we could in my apartment, in my neighbor's yard, uh, over that fence we weren't supposed to cross, just anywhere we could to like get those pieces to make the movie happen. And I think the idea being is that we'll pay off in the long run. But even if it doesn't, we we make a movie and it's it's our legacy, right? Like that's yeah. that's what we leave behind. If we never make another movie, at least we left it all in the field. And people want to say that they worked on a movie that's good. They they want to be able when they're looking for jobs, when they're filling out their resume or whatever, they want to say, you know, I was on Mortuary Collection, I was on this, I was on that. They wanted they want to be able to say that. So yeah, in the moment it, it does kind of seem like a lot when you're really trying to, you know, focus on these finite things. I can't even imagine being on set for a Fincher movie, for instance. But like at the end of the day, it's it's all it's all going to be something you're gonna want to hopefully put on your resume and say, I'm proud I worked on that movie. You know, it's funny, I had this conversation with one of our producers early on um in pre-production when I was talking about I'm sorry, it was actually our DP, uh, Andrew Baird, who's a genius. And he was like, look, man, I, I was trying to tell him, like, how how nice, like, sh- should I be? You know, like, what's what's the level of, like, firmness that the crew might need in certain moments? And he's like, look, nobody wants to say that a really bad movie is on their resume, but they got home an hour early every day. <laughs> like, everyone is rather like, yeah, we, 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 we kind of pushed every single day, but I'm proud of that movie. You know, so that's that's what's sure. the, the mentality I tried to maintain. And I think that um, honestly, like I really do love Mortuary Collection. And I think that one of the reasons it is one of the best horror anthologies is because one person made it. And the vision is a, it's it's completely solid from beginning to end. You can tell that your hand is involved in every choice, whereas some other horror anthologies, well, plenty are great. Um mm-hmm they kind of suffer from the multiple visions that are ups and downs. Different people have different ideas. I want to have it this tempo. I want to have it slower. Yours is, is, is you all the way through. It's one of the reasons I love trick or treat as well. Um, I think that's probably the best, probably the best way to do it. It's tougher. It's, it's, you definitely can't, you know, when one person's doing the whole thing, but it's a little, I don't want to say easier, but you've got multiple multiple people in multiple places making a short and you're going to combine it into a movie. But like your wraparound with Clancy Brown, who's amazing in the movie, by the way, I fucking love Clancy Brown. Um, oh, I would love to work with him one day. He's so great. Um, well, I have his number. I can hook you up. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> man. I mean, like anybody who can go from Shawshank Redemption to uh, Mr. Krabs, that's a genius level actor. So <laughs> it's true. I had a simple, a strange revelation. This is for anybody who might want to try to make a horror anthology. One of the things that I had I never considered um, was what the post process would be like making a movie like that, because you know, like you write it and you put all your best efforts in, and then you go to set and you do your best to make the best thing, right? But generally, if you're making, let's say you're making an indie feature and it's a single location, six people, right? You have about five points in the story spectrum that you have to nail. And if you nail them and you go to a film festival, people will love it. Like if you have a great opening, if your characters click for the audience, if you have a great turning points, if your climax works, like if you hit these five beats, people will forgive everything else because it's an indie film and it's your, it's 
honestly, people don't really like nobody cares as much as the filmmakers for all the details. They just want to like understand big story swings. What I didn't anticipate with the Mortuary Collection was we'd have to do that five times. So, you know, we get into post and you're like, you have five character introductions, you have five turning points, you have five climaxes, like, and everything had to work. And we were like dogged about making sure each one of them, we did our very best to make work. And that just took so much time. Um, so I think that that's something for people to know if they want to go into making a movie like this. It's rewarding and you get to play in all these different genres and you get to like explore all these different filmmaking techniques. But the post process in particular, you need so much more time. And if you don't have that time, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure, I think. My stomach dropped when you said you have to do that five times because I, I instantly realized the stress of that. Um, because it's already stressful enough to to focus on one story and make sure that those yeah. beats hit, but you know, multiple. And again, though, that's why it's a good film because you notice all these things, you care about all these things. There's a thing that my friend and I, I have a, a really good writer friend, I've known him for a long time. It's our subgenre of horror that nobody else talks about, but we have our name for it. It's adult themed goosebumps. Cause him and I love goosebumps. I, that in third grade, I, um, my mom gave me a goosebumps book and I, fell in love with it. And that's actually what got me to start writing. I started writing short stories that were based off the goosebumps and I drew my own goosebumps covers and, you know, that got me into writing before filmmaking. And so as an adult, I've always sort of searched for that kind of feeling, but in a way that appeals to me as an adult and mortuary collection is exactly that for me. Oh, thank you, man. I think there was a, there was, we got a review early on when the movie came out and somebody said, Oh, it's like goosebumps for adults, but they kind of said it disparagingly. And I was like, that's exactly what I was going for. That's exactly what I I want. I want goosebumps, bladder gore, and adult themes. That's exactly what I want. That's what I was going for. So that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Well, it's so great, man. And uh, if anyone listening hasn't seen it, I strongly encourage them to, and also check out anything else that, that Ryan Spindell does in the future. Um, speaking of that, is there anything you can talk about? Do you have plans? Do you have things you're looking forward to? No, I don't make plans. I just go with the flow. No, I have, I, I do. I have, um, I have a lot of stuff I can't talk about. I'm, I'm developing a, uh, a really fun, uh, horror movie for a big streamer right now and, uh, and a series as well separately. Amazing. But I will say this, and this is, uh, I don't mean this as self-promotion, but I do think it's like criminally underseen. But I worked on this horror anthology series for Sam Raimi uh, that was on Quibi um, called 50 States of Fright that is now for free on Roku. And anybody can watch it. And I just feel like people should watch it because it has so many cool, like, it's the first time in a really long time uh, a company has given great budgets to new filmmakers and said, go with God, do whatever you want. And I think there's like, you can, there's like some kinks that needed to be worked out, but like overall, it's like one of the most exciting things. And I feel like because it was on the Quibi platform, it kind of got overlooked and kind of got like pushed aside, but like, go watch it. It's free online and it's super cool. I did one of those, but so did like Beck in the Woods. Uh, so many cool people did things that you love now, the filmmakers made and they're on there. And I think it's, it's worth checking out. Well, thank you so much, man, for joining us today. Honestly, it was a pleasure to talk to you, not just about your history, but just about film and horror as a genre. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. 
Dude, thank you for having me. This was a absolute blast.